0: Hi everyone, welcome back to the Spirit of Success. I'm your host, Yara, and on today's episode, we will be discussing careers related to law. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with well-known, acclaimed, and beloved lawyer and advocate, Mrs. Laili Miller-Muro. Mrs. Miller-Moro, with a career in law spanning more than 25 years, has dedicated a large portion of her work to assisting and protecting immigrants and refugees escaping violence and abuse. As the founder and former CEO, currently serving as a senior advisor to the CEO of the Tahir Justice Center, she and her group have assisted over 30,000 women and children since 2001 and have grown the nonprofit from a staff of six to over 100, expanding the organization's offices from Greater D.C. to Houston, Baltimore, Atlanta, and the San Francisco Bay Area. Mrs. Miller-Muro and the Tahir Justice Center have won a number of awards for their outstanding work, including the Washington Post Award for Management Excellence, gaining recognition for the Center's innovative views of pro bono service in the Stanford Social Innovation Review, Newsweek Daily Beast's 150 Most Fearless Women in the World, Diane Von Frostenberg's People's Voice Award, and Goldman Sachs's Top 100 Most Innovative Entrepreneurs. Prior to the Tahir Justice Center, Mrs. Miller-Muro worked as an attorney advisor at the U.S. Department of Justice, Board of Immigration Appeals, and an attorney at the law firm of Arnold & Porter, practicing international litigation where she maintained substantial pro bono practice. Mrs. Miller-Muro is also a frequent lecturer and has appeared on a variety of news outlets, including CNN, Fox News, The New York Times, NPR, The Wall Street Journal, and The Washington Post. Throughout her career and all her work in and out of the office, Mrs. Miller-Muro is dedicated to helping create a more united and just world for all. Welcome, Mrs. Miller-Muro. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you for being on the show today, and I'm super excited for our conversation. So before we get into the details of your career, we would love to know what got you interested in law and how did you get your start? Um,
1: So I was very interested all throughout high school because of some very personal experiences with people I loved very much in racism and helping to eradicate it. When I was in high school, I had uh, very, very close friends through the Baha'i community, which was very diverse in Atlanta, where I grew up, who experienced very extreme racism. And as a white person in particular, um, I recognized that there was privilege and responsibility associated with trying to address this most challenging issue for America and um, ended up working for the Martin Luther King Center in Atlanta. I then worked as an intern for the Carter Center. And those experiences made me realize that it would be really helpful to have a law degree And so I decided to go to law school to try to do civil rights or human rights work, Um, but I had not had an expressed interest in women's rights until I went to law school and had experiences that shaped that focus.
0: Thank you for sharing that with us. And how have your values impacted and influenced your approach to law and what unique perspectives do these bring to your practice of law? Um, you know,
1: law and what is what is legal and what is just are not necessarily the same things. And so while as a lawyer, I have to be very careful about being legally compliant and following the law, I also bring values that come from my faith, the Baha'i faith, into my work that in, help influence what is just, what is fair, um, which again, isn't necessarily the same thing as the law. So um, I think as a Baha'i the values that most influence my work have to do with, obviously, the equality of women and men. So in the Baha'i faith, there is a belief that humankind is uh, incomplete and unable to reach its full capacity until the male and the female, the feminine and the masculine are in balance. And so this is a very important value that I um, try to make my life's work in order to help society advance. Um, Also, Um, The Baha'i faith has, brings values with regard to what is justice that are very interesting and different from a lot of current perspectives on justice. So the American justice system was really designed to define justice by punishment. So when someone receives a conviction and then they receive a sentence, the justice system is like, okay, we're done. (laughs) Justice has been done is the saying. Um, But the Baha'i view on that is that's not true, that the purpose of justice is the appearance of unity. And so the justice process is incomplete until there has been, um, yes, truth finding, fact finding, a determination about what happened, um, a determination about consequence and punishment, an implementation and enforcement of those consequences. But it doesn't stop there and it has to continue to rebuilding trust, healing relationships, reconciling, um, restoring, and then allowing us to eventually reach unity. And so the Baha'i view of kind of this arc of justice is longer than punishment. It involves um, an eventual process that must lead to unity because Baha'is believe that every soul is noble, nobody is dispensable. Um, and we believe that justice is for the well-being of society at large and not an exercise of vengeance or anger or retribution. It's about well-being, well-being of society and well-being of that person who's doing wrong things and that's hurting their own soul, essentially. So those
0: values
1: are, are all things that influence my work a lot.
0: You brought up a really interesting point um, is versus what is legal and what is just we think about it in our own lives you know the ideas of what is okay to do versus what is just to do is kind of a similar situation i feel so moving on to part of your experiences in law um, and especially some of your earlier experiences. In 1996, you were involved in a landmark asylum case um, called the Matter of Kasinga that set national precedents and has largely influenced asylum laws in the United States. Can you please tell us more about your involvement with that case and the role it played in helping you decide how you wanted to specialize your practice of law?
1: Yeah, so when I was in law school, I had the, the blessing, the honor, of representing a 17 year old girl from Togo in West Africa. And she had fled to the United States because she was about to be forced to undergo female genital mutilation. And she was going to be forced into a child marriage uh, and polygamous marriage to a much older man. And so she came seeking protection, but the problem was that our laws didn't allow at that time for the inclusion of gender-based persecution as a grounds for asylum. The law had been written after World War II, and it required that you show legally that your persecution is because of your race, your religion, your political opinion, your nationality, or your social group. Um, but gender isn't there. And so it was a flaw of the law the way it was written. And it's no wonder because you know, after World War II, it's not that people were thinking deeply at that time about women's rights, that came later. Um, But now we know better and it's important to modify laws that weren't originally written with all people in mind. And so the case, um, I, I argued her case after having written a law journal article making a academic or theoretical argument that gender should be included. And then as the universe works in mysterious ways, the summer after having written that article, I was given her case. I represented her and then um, worked with American University Law School where I was a student to take her case up to the highest immigration appellate court in the United States. And at that stage, her case got a lot of press. Um, There was a lot of attention to it Um, and um, she won. And at that stage, uh, she won the case set legal precedent. It opened up the doors to what we now call gender-based asylum. Um, Because of the media attention, there was commercial interest And her story, my story is representing her as a law student. And so she and I wrote a book together and I used my portion of the proceeds of the book to start the Tahereh Justice Center. What's important to note though, is that legal precedent is vulnerable because depending on the political winds of the time and who happened to be judges, uh, legal cases can be overturned. And in fact, that's what happened just two years ago. And so the legal precedent on which gender-based asylum was possible is now uh, not in full force. And so the Tahari Justice Center and other advocates are currently advocating to foundationally, structurally fix the foundational flaw of that law and correct the statute so that gender is explicitly included rather than going back to the status quo of the last 24 years, 25 years, her case was in um, 1996 six so 25 years um let's not go back and simply have another legal precedent that can also be vulnerable let's fix it at the structural level so her case has had an interesting journey
0: as i was reading and doing a little bit more research on the case in general um, and also reading up on the tara justice center a little bit more which we're going to talk about um, in the next question Um, I was surprised to find how recently this law was, you know, changed even as you shared with us right now that it's something that you and the Atari Justice Center and other groups are still actively working on so as we spoke about and as you mentioned. Um, subsequently, in 1997, you founded the Tahira Justice Center, which is a nonprofit organization that works to assist and protect women and girls escaping abuse and violence, and that advocates and works for increasing the equality and safety of women and girls. Can you tell us more about the experiences that inspired you to create the Tahira Justice Center in addition to the case um, with Kasinga, and more about the work that your organization does?
1: So, um. The Tari Justice Center provides free legal defense for women and girls who are fleeing human rights abuses. Um, We are litigating about 2,000 cases at any given time. And we do that through um, client-centered and trauma-informed interdisciplinary services. And so what that means is that the clients have agency. Our job is simply to serve them. They define justice and what that means for them. And then it's our job uh, to support them navigating our very complex legal system. Um, That is important because a lot of lawyers and the legal profession in general can have a big ego and can believe it knows what's best and can impose strategy on marginalized communities or vulnerable people. It's what leads a lot of folks to very unfortunately agree to plea bargaining when they were innocent or that kind of thing, you know? So there's an approach to our lawyering that is client-centered that's very important to us. Um, Also, we have an interdisciplinary approach, which means that justice is not just found in the courtroom, but it's also found in rebuilding your life and in maintaining your dignity. And so we have social workers on staff who also help work with our clients so that they can rebuild their lives and rebuild their dignity. Additionally, Tahari does public policy advocacy. We work on things like making sure that gender is in the refugee definition, the Violence Against Women Act reauthorization, and um, a lot of federal litigation, which particularly in recent years has been very important in order to protect due
0: process rights. It's really amazing that a center like that exists. Um, But even from my brief experience of working with some refugees, um, it's... Very interesting, I think, how often you see that these resources that they need are either really hard to access mm-hmm. um, or are just not organized well for them to access um, you know, efficiently. So in your experience, what have been some of the steps and actions that have been helpful in bringing together and centralizing information about available resources for refugees and immigrants in any given community? Um, you're
1: absolutely right. The information is not centralized. And, and, and part of the problem with a reason for that is that many organizations that serve immigrants are small and don't have a lot of capacity. And centralization requires capacity. You have to be large enough to communicate to aggregate the information, to maintain it, that kind of thing. And so, you know, it's 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 an argument for scale and and for having a large organization or large more large organizations who really have the power and the scale in order to centralize information and make it widely available to as many people as possible. And we just don't have that right now.
0: So you also mentioned that the Tara Justice Center also deals with policy um, and kind of policy creation and policy um, helping and maintaining policy. Um, so what is your vision of what would constitute globally encompassing and equitable policy making guidelines that promote the well-being of all over the promotion of individual interests and profit?
1: Um, so it's a great question and it's a very specific question. Like what, you know, what is the policy that we need um, and guidelines? I think My hesitation in answering it is, I don't think one set of guidelines or policies is the solution. Um, It will help and it will complement, but what is really needed is a spiritual transformation of our identity. Um, People are easily divided and too easily seeing their own needs and kind of selfishly putting themselves above others. Um, you know, there's so many examples of this, you know, um, we don't want people who are facing difficult circumstances in their country to come here, but when we're facing difficult circumstances, we want to be able to go there, you know, or, um, you know, um, so much of the world remains unvaccinated and we are now in this luxury situation of being able to vaccinate 12 year olds where you have whole villages being decimated. Because they've yet to receive even the most basic vaccinations, it's this kind of like hoarding of I want to make sure I'm okay. I don't really care if you're okay. <laughs> That's, and it's and, and I think the spiritual disease in that is that we don't see our oneness. We don't see the fact that we're interconnected, and that my well-being is tied up in your well-being. And I am only as successful as the least successful among us. If there's someone suffering, if there's someone facing injustice, then we are all suffering and we are all facing injustice. We, we don't have that. We don't, we, it's in all of our faith traditions, it's in Christianity, it's in Buddhism, it's in Islam, it's in Judaism, it's in the Baha'i faith. It is a spiritual truth that all of us aspire to and none of us have achieved. If we did, then all of these things would fall into place. If we did that, then someone who was making billions would believe it to be unconscionable to walk past someone who's homeless because they would see the connection. They would feel their pain. It would be an intolerable, if we we truly realized how one we are, then we wouldn't be able to live with that kind of injustice and inequity. Um, I feel like that's that understanding and appreciation is more important than any singular policy. Um, I also think that these kinds of things aren't going to be mandated. It's hard to mandate conscience. Um, and, And so it really comes from within and is a spiritual transformation that's required. That said, there are very tangible structural things that can be done, particularly in our justice system and in our taxation system to make sure that people are being treated fairly. But the I think the special sauce and making sure that those regulations and policies are equitable and fair have to do with who is at the table making them. Um, And it's partly why I don't wanna answer it as a white woman because certainly as a woman, I I can have an angle on a a feminist perspective that is lacking in the laws currently. But as a white person, I will lack um, to an intolerable degree A true understanding of what it is to be a person of color in the United States or to be in a marginalized community. And so I I think that, you know, rather than pontificating on certain, like certain policies and certain guidelines, I I believe strongly that new guidelines and new policies have to be developed through consultation with people who are most impacted and most affected at the table, who are a part of the development of that policy and that guideline. Um, And, you know, it's no secret that white men have dominated the development of those policies and guidelines in America for hundreds of years. That has to change. It has to be more representative, more reflective of our country and who we are. And um, everyone representatively has to be at the table in order to truly bring perspective, to truly develop laws and policies that are most effective for equity.
0: I totally agree with what you're saying, especially about the representation. and you mentioned the interconnectedness of our world which is something that we've talked about a few times on the show and i think it's something that uh, we're seeing especially during these times of the pandemic that really whatever is going on somewhere else is also affecting what's going on where you live or vice versa so uh, from that and from the different experiences that you've shared with us Um, We would love to know what does success mean to you and how has your definition of success evolved throughout your life and career? Um, For me, success is
1: the ability to serve. So it would be acquiring whatever skills or experiences or tools are helpful for service to others. Um, So getting my law degree was success for me, because it was a tool I could use for service. Um, you know, for me, I feel success in the numbers of women, girls, and other survivors that we've been able to help and to serve. Um so I guess it's you know it's kind of the degree to which one can serve that to me, is a mark of success.
0: I think that's a beautiful answer. And I love how you mentioned that being able to develop those capacities, or take those tools that you need to be able to be of better service um, is in itself a form of success. And I think that's a wonderful way to think about it uh, Mm -hmm. as we try to develop our own uh, definitions of success and especially for you. So kind of similar to what we were talking about previously um, and continuing with that thought it appears that today, society is recognizing more and more the pressing urgency that equal rights for all are established and practiced throughout the world. What suggestions do you have for what we can all do to help make this a reality?
1: Um, I guess I, I would say to work on ourselves is a really important, you know, this idea of, of oneness and like, but, but constantly asking what does that look like? constantly asking um you know particularly for youth i think there's a a wonderful opportunity as as a new generation to influence the redefinition of what does oneness look like if we really valued others not only as much as ourselves but but more than ourselves you know um, selflessly let alone equally (laughs) but selflessly if we loved others selflessly and cared about their well-being how does that show up? And, and, and I think there's just a huge conversation to have around what does it look like. Um, might that mean I don't go shopping at stores that sell shirts for $5? And instead, I go to a store that sells them for $20, because what I know is that $5 is not realistic, and the person who's making, who made that shirt is making sweatshop labor rates. And so I'm willing to pay more so that you get paid more, you know, I'm willing to pay 10 cents more for a hamburger, so that you receive a minimum wage that wasn't set in the 1980s, but is related to today's current expense realities, I'm willing to be burdened more for your well being, you know, I think it's kind of, you know, I, I think often too about schools, I have three children, and As a parent there's just this constant game around getting the best education for your child and you know I I think and I've tried to have some conversations with parents around if we really loved other children as much as we love ours might that mean that we refuse to opt out of a local public school system that we don't like and instead we stay in it and we improve it (laughs) like might it mean that we allow our property taxes to go to a neighboring community that has less wealthy homes so that their kids can have the same budget as our kids. You know, and I think when people, the rubber meets the road because then people are like, oh, wait, no, I don't want the budget of my kid's school to go down (laughs) so that another, you know, budget school can go up. But we have to really pause. And is that fair? Is that equitable? And do we really care about other kids as much as we're caring about our own kids? You know, the laundry list goes on and on. But I think there's so much to think about and and conversations at the dinner table to be had and conversations among peers um, and friends, as well as policymakers that ask the question, if we are one and if we value each other equally, then why am I getting and you're not and I'm okay with that? And not only am I okay with it, I advocate for it. (laughs) I advocate for me having more than you. There's something diseased about that. I I was also, I was talking to a dear friend who, she's got a really great sense of humor and she's always cracking me up, but she, um, it was her birthday and I said, okay, you know, Oh no no! Oh no, it wasn't her birthday. It was a new—it was the New Year's, and and she always has New Year's resolutions. And and um, I said, "What's your New Year's resolution?" And she said, "My New Year's resolution is not to use my privilege." And I was like, "Oh, that's really interesting. Like, how does that show up for you? What do you mean by that?" And and she said, "Well, my kid didn't get into um, at some kind of after-school program, but I knew the owner of the after-school program. I knew that I could probably call her and get my kid in." but I refused to use my privilege because other kids don't have the same privilege. So it's like this like active, I'm not gonna get one up on you. I'm gonna intentionally uh, ensure that the advantage I have is gonna be the same that you have. Even if it benefits me and my family, I'm not gonna take advantage of it. And I think there's something to that that we have to do collectively.
0: Yeah, I think that idea of self-reflection that needs to happen constantly in the conversations that we need to be having about things that, like you mentioned, are things that maybe we sometimes don't even think are really big deals. Um, And I think that's also another thing that we've really been realizing is that even the small things or what we think are the small things, A, may not be the small things for somebody else, and B, on a large scale, when you're trying to fix everything, I think that we're starting to realize that really means everything. You can't just fix some parts of it and not fix other parts of it uh, and think that it's really going to cause a uh, change that is meaningful. Keeping on the theme of some of the conversations we've been having, what do you think is the role of youth and service in today's society? Um, I mean, the youth have a
1: profound role to play and I think are going to be the answer to the future of the world. I think that the this generation in particular, which has grown up now, Um, with um, political turmoil, with um, health turmoil, environmental turmoil um, is a very special generation and much more awake and much more aware and much more motivated to change than generations of the past. So I have a lot of optimism and a lot of hope in this generation, but I think that the success of the youth will depend on recognizing that it's it's a marathon, not a sprint. Um, You know that that it's very good to be energized and motivated and moved and that can create the spark, but that we have to have um, a lot of stamina, because it will take a long time and we have to maintain the same level of energy and commitment to it. I think also for youth to begin thinking about what really concrete skills are going to serve, and what will help advance the purpose of the work is really important because it's one thing to be outraged about something, to speak out, to march, all of that's good. And we need to develop the skills in order to then fix it, in order to uh, eventually do it. And, you know, So put another way, um, burning a building down is a lot easier than acquiring the architectural skills, the construction permits, learning how to use a hammer and constructing. And so, you know, I think youth, while there's an, there's an inclination to like dismantle and and, and, to, and that has to happen, it will happen. But I think that the success will not depend on the degree of dismantling. The success will depend on the degree of the rebuilding. And, and for youth to make a conscious choice to say, and, and these are metaphorical, I don't mean literal, but you know, I'm gonna get that architectural degree. I'm gonna get the contractor permit. I'm gonna roll up my sleeves and pick up that hammer and I'm gonna build. That's where the success lies. And that's hard, you know, cause that takes a long time. Like burning down a building just takes a day. <laughs> building a building can take a year or longer. The other thing tricky about that, is that you're responsible for what you build. You know, when you burn something down, when you criticize, when you tear it down, it's really easy to say, like, you know, to tear it down and then walk away and to condemn it. But when you build something, you have to take ownership. You have to take responsibility. It's left standing. You have to look at it and say, I built that. And darn it, I didn't get that room right, <laughs> or I didn't get this wall right, or I didn't get. And it's like inevitable that you won't get it right because it's hard, and and nobody has really experienced a, perfidy, a perfect, equitable, just house. We've never lived in one as a society, so we're building and we're trying to figure out. So the stakes are high, the level of responsibility is great, and the likelihood of being perfect is is like nil (laughs) because we're not going to be perfect so all of that is really scary but all of that is where we have to be burning it down tearing it down criticizing that's super easy it's the building stuff that's harder and so I I think youth should you know focus on that work because that's what's needed otherwise we're going to be left with just a bunch of destroyed buildings laying around and that that's not a society anyone wants to live in and what will fill the void will be the old way because people have the architectural plans for the previous structures. So it's the new way that, that you need to build.
0: I really like that advice. And I think that, um, like you said, in order for change to happen, and in order for youth's role in society to be effective, I agree, you have to have both parts of it. you have to have uh, the willingness to create a solution or find a solution or propose a solution uh, with the same willingness that you are to take something down or change it uh, there, there has to be both parts to it um, so it's been a pleasure speaking with you I've really enjoyed our conversations and we've hit on some really important topics uh, but before our episode ends do you have any additional words of encouragement or advice you would like to share with our audience Um, not really.
1: I think, you know, you've asked really, really great questions, and, and we've had a good conversation. Um, I I guess, well, maybe the the one thing I, I would add is just encouragement around how hard this all is. Um, and, and that it's supposed to be hard. And so when we feel it being hard, rather than thinking something's wrong, we should know that something's right because there's so much to change in the world and in ourselves and change is not comfortable. Comfortable is not changing. And so that should scare us more, being comfortable. And so I would just encourage uh, all of us to lean into the discomfort and, and to know that it will be hard and to be okay with that.
0: Well, thank you for the encouragement. And thank you very much, Mrs. Moore, for your insight and advice today. As I said, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. To learn more about the Tahir Justice Center, to check out their work, and to learn about how you could get involved, visit their website at tahir.org and their various social media handles, which can be found on their website. Well, thank you again for your time today, Mrs. and as always, thank you all for listening. Be sure to subscribe, follow, and like the podcast on its various platforms, including YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts to be notified each time a new episode is posted. If you wanna get the latest updates about the show, announcements, submit questions that you would like me to consider to talk about on the show, or join discussions related to the topics we discuss on the show, follow us on Instagram at spiritof.success, Facebook at spiritof.success9, and our new Facebook group under the Spirit of Success. Until next time, I'm your host, Yara, and don't forget to continue challenging yourself and working to make your spirit soar to new heights. Bye!